You're listening to a Southside Baptist Church podcast with our pastor, Dr. Jeff Barker. For more audio content, please refer to our website at ssbaptistchurch.com. Well, amen. You can be seated. And uh, it's good to see you here. Good to be in the Lord's house. You know, God will do a lot of things in a storm. I was telling Reggie a moment ago or earlier that uh, Sheila and I, you've heard me tell this story, we were on our way uh, flying from Atlanta to, uh, to Europe. We were actually going to an assignment there in England. We had all four kids. We were in the Atlanta airport. I was griping and complaining. It was not a good day. Things were going wrong. And then lo and behold, we were flying KLM to Amsterdam rather than going to London on, air, on British Air. So I was frustrated. I was irritated. It was, uh, I had a bad feeling. I, I didn't feel comfortable about the trip. I was worried about taking the family. And I don't know if it was stormy weather there in Atlanta, but I just had a sick, bad feeling. And I went down, I was walking up and down the, probably trying to get away from the kids for a little while because we knew we were getting ready to be trapped on a, over, an overnighter with them on a plane. And, and I went down to where that plane was leaving earlier, quicker, Air, British Airways, beautiful brand new plane flying to London. And I thought, man, why couldn't we be on that plane? I went on down to that KLM flight. It looked like something that had been flying since the Depression. I mean, the plane looked horrible, and I was frustrated. We were flying to Amsterdam. We had a day in Amsterdam with the kids. And so I was just irritated, thinking, why did they do this? And, and on top of that, it looked like stormy weather. So I was really nervous. I get on that KLM flight. We start settling the kids down and still frustrated. Weather's bad. Plane looks dilapidated, old. And then about that time, I look at Adrian. Adrian Rogers, I could hear his voice, and he was stowing his luggage, sat two rows behind us. And that night, I spent three and a half hours drinking coffee and fellowshipping with Adrian Rogers to the degree it became very intimate, the fellowship. I mean, us slapping each other on the shoulders like a couple old ball players, cutting up and joking around. We were finally, the stewardess said, y'all are going to have to be quiet because they made us a pot of coffee. And at 1.30 in the morning, we were still laughing, cutting up, standing by that door that goes out, you know, there in that area off from the stewardess there. You know, and, and I thought to myself, you know, sometimes in the stormy, tough times, God reveals himself or gives us an opportunity to experience things in a very unique way. And he did that day. Now, I've titled the message this morning, When a Horse, When a Racehorse Stumbles. When a Racehorse Stumbles. And we're beginning a study in the Gospel of Mark. So I want you to take your Bibles, turn over to, to the Gospel of Mark, Matthew, Mark. It's right there between Matthew and Luke. And I want you to look at this first chapter. And um, we're beginning a new book study, uh, a new study of the, of the Gospel of Mark. And of course, when you look at Mark, his name is, is uh, John Mark. You'll see him referred to as John Mark. Now, the word John, the name John is his Jewish name. Mark is his Gentile name, okay? So are you with me? Say amen. amen. So John Mark, John is the Jewish name. Mark is his Gentile name. And we're going to be introduced today to this man uh, who I, I, I think is like a racehorse who's stumbling uh, coming out of the gate. So uh, in Mark chapter 1, beginning at verse 1, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, 
the Son of God. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the desert. Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John came baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of what? Baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to to him confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray again. The Holy uh, Lord, we come to you in the power and the presence of your Holy Spirit. We ask you, dear Lord, to anoint the preaching and the teaching of your word as we begin this new book. Lord, we're excited the gospel of Mark. We pray, dear Lord, that you would cleanse me, forgive me of any idle word, any thought, dear Lord. Make me a vessel you can use. Forgive those that may be listening who are not walking as they should, but Lord, may you just cleanse their hearts and make them receptive. Lord, we give you all the glory for what you'll do today. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Um, let me, let me read to you something John MacArthur says, and I think it's a good way maybe to give you a little bit of a feel as to the Gospel of Mark. He says, the Gospel of Mark reads like a newspaper. It is fast-paced with the word immediately appearing over 40 times. In other words, the word immediately appears over 40 times in the Gospel of Mark. It is an action gospel written in Mark uh, written in Rome to Romans, most of which who were illiterate. They were unable to read. Therefore, this gospel was read to a Roman audience like a fast-paced story that could be grasped and would hold their interest. Now, everybody look this way. The gospel of Mark is written by a young man by the name of John Mark. And in a moment, we'll, we'll look at, at who he is and the kind of individual that he is. But what John MacArthur is basically saying is that the gospel of Mark is unlike Matthew, unlike Luke, and unlike John. It's just fast-paced. It's filled with a lot of action. It was written by John Mark in Rome to Romans, and it was basically to be read to an audience of people who were looking and trying to learn more about Jesus Christ. It's fast-paced. It's influenced by, the, by, by Peter, one of the closest apostles to, to Jesus. Now, William Hendrickson said this, and this may sound a little bit, you know, when you're doing an introduction to a book, a lot of times it sounds a little bit like a seminary class. But I want you to stay with me. William Hendrickson, which is a great commentary, states, by no means certain, but nevertheless probable is the identification of Mark with the young man whose interesting story is told by the evangelist himself in chapter 14 verses 51 and 52. So I want you to take a right, go over it real quickly because this is the only time we find Mark speaking about himself and you may say, well, I always wondered about that. In, in Mark chapter 14, 51 and 52, um, 
Mark says, and this is, this is the night that Jesus is betrayed by Judas. This is the night of the Lord's Supper. This is the night that Jesus will be betrayed by Judas. And this is the night that Jesus is in Gethsemane praying. Now, in Mark chapter 14, verses 51 and 52, it said, A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. You ever wondered about that? Who is that? I mean, the guy wasn't running around his boxers or his... Well, they didn't have boxers and Fruit of the Loom. When you slept at night, you slept just pretty much naked. So who is this young man who is at this gathering where the home is, where the Lord's Supper possibly was being held, who hears this commotion about 11 p.m. at night and gets up and realizes that Jesus is being arrested and that the whole dynamic of the disciples and their lives is basically being transitioned now. And we find this individual. Let me carry on. William Hendrickson said this. He said it was the night before the crucifixion. Jesus and his disciples, disciples were leaving the upper room. Was this room part of the very house owned by Mark's mother, Mary, the home where also Mark lived? If so, it is understandable that the young man, this young man that we're introduced here, having supposedly already fallen asleep, it may have been about 11 p.m. at night, awakens. Had he previously fully surrendered his heart to the Savior? We don't know. However, there was an inner compulsion to accompany Jesus that overpowers this young man. Snatching and throwing around his body a linen cloth, he rushes out in order to follow Jesus. He is seized when the temple police come to arrest Jesus. They grab him. He escapes, however, while his reconstruction is not too bold. It would imply that even as a young man, Mark, like his mother, was a follower of Jesus Christ, though he was not one of the twelve, not one of the original twelve. John MacArthur, when he writes Twelve Ordinary Men in his book, said that if he ever rewrote that book, he would write Thirteen Ordinary Men and would include Mark as one of those uh, extraordinary individuals. John Mark, do you ever hear people called by two names? Let me tell you a weird thing about your pastor. When I counsel men, if they use two names, I never acknowledge two names. Because I always think it's something that probably a mom tagged on to a child, to a son. You ever notice that? You ever notice when you're in trouble, your mom would use your full name? You know, she would call you by your full name. Ledger Charles Parker, will you get in this house right now? Ledge knew that automatically he was in trouble, right? More often than not, if you had two names, it was because your mom tagged you with that. So a weird thing about your pastor, when I counsel men, if they use two names, I don't acknowledge one of them. I'll just say one name. I know that's strange, but I'm a weird character anyway. But now there's only two points to this message. Number one, first of all, let's meet Mark the, the deserter. Because that's exactly what Mark is when you look at the scripture. You remember when you were studying American history, who was Benedict Arnold? He was basically a deserter, somebody who betrayed the country. Let me ask you something. Does anybody know who Stanley, Stanley Lord was? Anybody know Stanley Lord, the name Stanley Lord? When the Titanic was, was sinking, when the Titanic was sinking, um, the Captain Smith, Edward Smith, sent out an SOS that basically that the ship was going down. Now remember the Titanic was considered to be unsinkable. 
So he sends out this distress, this SOS, and begins to fire up flares. The Carpathia, which is on its way to the Mediterranean, is four and a half hours away, turns around, and at breakneck speed is coming back toward the Titanic. But not far from the Titanic, close enough to see the flares, was another ship that was called the Californian. And the Californian was captained by a man by the name of Captain Stanley Lord. His crew, his, 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 um, his co-pilots, his, his other captains or the other individuals, his other officers, they came, knocked on his door. He had already gone to bed that night. Remember the Titanic hit the, the iceberg about 11, 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night. His crew comes and they knock on the door and say, Captain, Captain Lord, they wake him up and they basically say, we're getting distress signals, number one, and we're seeing flares off the starboard bow or whatever, not far, and we believe them to be that of the Titanic. We think the Titanic is in trouble. Well, everybody thought the Titanic was what? Unsinkable, indestructible. So Stanley Lord made this statement. He said to his officers, he said, listen, I'm tired, it's been a long day. Leave me alone, let me sleep. They are probably, this is what he said, they're probably celebrating. In other words, shooting up distress flares, just celebrating, having some kind of event. He went back to bed and ultimately later that night or the next morning, they discover 1,500 people have perished not far from them. Easily they could have been reached by the Californian. They were not. Captain Stanley Lord, to this day, his family legally is trying to defend the decisions that he made. But the bottom line is history paints him in a very bad light. When you open up to the Gospel of Mark, one of the things you realize is that Mark is a very unique character. Take, go over to, take a right, go over to Acts chapter 12, verse 12. Because this is the first time that we are introduced to this man by the name of Mark. Now, over in, in Acts, go over to Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and keep going... Do you come to Acts chapter 12, verse 12? But in Acts chapter 12, verse 12, we're introduced to this man by the name of John Mark. Now, in Acts chapter 12, verse 12, it says this. Now, let me give you a little bit of a, a breakdown of what's happening here. The church is gathered together. Now, everybody look this way just for a moment. John Mark's mother's name is Mary. And to distinguish her from other Marys, such as Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Jesus, it, they would introduce her, refer to her. Luke, when he was writing Acts, would refer to her as the mother of, of, uh, of John Mark. Okay, That's how he identified with her. The early church in Jerusalem, it was believed, met in the home. Well, they did. They met in the home of John Mark's mother. In other words, his mom there in Jerusalem basically was the home or the place, the first meeting place of the early New Testament church after Jesus had been resurrected. So John Mark, and it's also believed this, that the Lord's Supper may have taken place in the home of John Mark's mother, Mary. So John Mark had privy to rubbing shoulders with not only Jesus, James, John, Peter, and eventually even the Apostle Paul. And, and if you've been there on Wednesday nights when we went through the book of Acts, if you divide Acts up, the first 13 chapters of Acts are about Peter, and the last part of Acts is about Paul. Well, in Acts chapter 12, verse 12, Peter has been put in prison because Herod is trying to score some points with the Sanhedrin. 
So he's in prison. And so the early New Testament church is meeting in the home of John Mark's mother, Mary, and they're in the middle of a prayer meeting. Well, they're praying and God's, God's answering their prayer, but they're not believing. And eventually what happens is Peter comes to the door and, and their prayer is answered. But in Acts chapter 12, verse 12, there's a little side note here. It said, when this had dawned on him, he went to... Now, what happens is Peter is released out of prison by an angelic army. An angel comes and, and you remember Peter's fast asleep and, and sets him free of the chains, opens the door and, and sends him on his way. And he shows up at the house of John Mark and Mary, the mother of John Mark. So in verse 12, when this had dawned on Peter, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and they were praying. So here we're introduced here to the fact that Luke is telling us as he's writing to Theophilus, he's introducing us to this young man by the name of John Mark. So it's believed here that Mark, John Mark grew up in the in the atmosphere of the early disciples, the early New Testament church, and he had a lot of information. Now, I'm, I'm reading, okay, now take a right, go over from Acts 12 and go all the way back toward the back of your Bible and go to 1 Peter chapter 5. Because what happens is, is that John Mark has grown up in the, company, in the company of the disciples. He's grown up in the atmosphere of the early New Testament church. And in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12 and 13, when Peter is writing, when Peter is writing to, to the early believers there, Peter makes a, a little comment about John Mark, the writer of the Gospel of Mark. He says, and the God of all grace who called you, this is 1 Peter 5.10, and the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while. Now he's trying to encourage the early New Testament church that is suffering persecution under Rome. He says, and the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while will himself restore you and make you you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the uh, power forever and ever. Amen. Now, verse 12. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother. Now, he's talking about Silas. Remember, Silas, when Paul and Barnabas split ways, Silas goes with Paul and, and, and John Mark goes with Barnabas. Now, it's important. Watch this. In verse 12, with the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful what? Brother... I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She, and he's talking here about the church, who is in Babylon, which is a code word for Rome, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does who? And so does my son, Mark. So there was a strong relationship between, between Peter and John Mark. They were real close. In fact, when Paul basically, uh, well, let's just move on. Let me, let me move on. Go over, to, go over to Acts chapter 13. When you get to Acts chapter 13, beginning at verse 2, let's pick up at verse 2. It gives us a breakdown of some of these early uh, leaders, church leaders, prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. Verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. And then when you read on down there, let me see. Well, eventually we'll read it. 
when you get on down there, you, uh, let's see, verse 4 and 5. I'm trying to move real quickly. Uh, verse 4. The two of them sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia, and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. Now watch this. See it right there at the latter part of verse 5? John was with them as their what? As their helper. So what we do is we find that, that now we have, we have Paul and we have Barnabas. They're sent out by the church at Antioch. And because they were suffering with a famine in Jerusalem, they're sent with an offering. Uh, uh, Paul and Barnabas, they're sent to Antioch. I mean, they're sent from Antioch to Jerusalem. And the early believers are there to take relief. When they get to Jerusalem, they go to the home of Mary. They're staying with Mary. And here they meet John Mark, who we discover later on in, in Colossians chapter 4, is a cousin of Barnabas. John Mark is a young man. He links up with Paul and Barnabas, and they take him back to Antioch with them, and they basically refer to him as a helper. Now pick up at, John, at Acts 13, 13. Time goes on. Uh, when from Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga and Pamphylia. Where do you see that? Chapter Acts 13, 13. What does it say? Who leaves them? John Mark. So here you have John Mark. He's picked up by Paul and Barnabas while they take this offering to relieve some of the pain of the famine there in Jerusalem church. They take him back to Antioch. Antioch eventually separates Paul and Barnabas along with John Mark who goes as a helper and they send them on their first missionary journey. So here they're on their first missionary journey when all of a sudden as they're going on this journey there comes a point that John Mark leaves Paul and Barnabas and goes back home. You with me? Now there's all kinds of speculation as to why he might have left. I wrote them down. Number one, Barnabas was taking second chair to Paul. In other words, here, here John Mark was the cousin of Barnabas. And so John Mark probably thought Barnabas was in charge. But as they begin to make the journey, all of a sudden Paul becomes the premier, primary figure in the book of Acts and the catalyst of the New Testament church. And so maybe John Mark was frustrated because Paul is the leader of this group rather than Barnabas, his, his relative. Secondly, it could have been because I think they're called the Taurus Mountains. They got to a place called the Taurus Mountains, which are very dangerous, filled with bandits, with all kinds of threats. And because of that, it was treacherous, it was dangerous, and John Mark wimped out and ran off and went back home. Thirdly, Paul was a driven, passionate man, and perhaps Paul was a little bit hard to live with, which I really believe that's part of it. You know, when you're passionate about things, you, you, you're, you're, sometimes you can be very difficult. And so it could have been that. Number four, and I believe this is primary reason, John Mark was young, he was immature, he was not deep, he got caught up in the glamour of the moment of being sent out, but once he settled down into the cost of it, all of a sudden when he began to realize there was a great cost to it, all of a sudden he wimped out and went back home. Let me give you an example. When you, when, you, when you become a missionary, Southern Baptist missionary, which is the only one I can, uh, you know, which is what we were. When you, when you go through the International Mission Board and you go through all this paperwork, all this process, I mean, it's, it's a lot to be appointed as a missionary. 
You go to Richmond, Virginia, you go to these meetings, you go through all these physicals, you go through all these psychiatric exams, you do all of this stuff because Southern Baptists are getting ready to invest a lot of money into you. And they're trying to prepare you for what you face. And finally, you go to the missionary learning center, seven weeks there. They begin to, you know, help you understand the culture shock and all of these things. They're helping you try to understand what it's going to be like to be a missionary in another culture. And it's one thing, nothing bad, Amanda. It's one thing to visit a country. It's another thing to go there and to live. And it's home. And you may never come back. And when you're looking at four years, your first appointment... And you're not coming home for four years and you're saying goodbye at the airport. All of a sudden it becomes very, very uh, difficult and you feel the cost of it. I'll never forget this. Look, Sheila and I have never been out of the country before. Here we are appointed to the mission field. We've got four kids. They did a feature. You know Parade Magazine used to be in the newspapers? They came, I think it was a paper like that, and, and it was in Virginia, a very prominent paper. They came and they did a story on our family. I mean, we, we for a while, we had, we had photographers following us around, asking us, interviewing, what's it like taking a, four kids and going to the other side of the world, going to Africa? Oh, man, well, you know, we just love Jesus. We're just going to do the will of God, no matter where it takes us, you know. And, and, you know, you, you, you go back to your church. They think you're some kind of hero. Southern Baptists think you're kind of, some kind of hero. And I mean, you, you know, you, you, just, you just think, man, I'm a missionary. We're, we're going to Africa. You know. But then all of a sudden, I remember getting to Africa. I remember getting to Joburg. Nelson Mandela had just been let out of prison. Man, it was heightened. It was tense. It was, it was difficult. And I remember we had 50-something pieces of luggage I went through a checkpoint with machine guns at me. I mean, I mean, they had guns there. Just about the time we came out of the, with the checkpoint, all of our luggage looked like a, it just looked like a wave just collapsed and 50-some pieces of luggage taken out about three or four old women as it was sliding down through the, through the uh, airport there. I remember that night when we got to a place called Bims. It's where missionaries go in Johannesburg. We finally settled down. We were in culture shock. Everything was strange. Language was strange. Everything was difficult. And we're thinking to ourselves, we've just made a four-year commitment the first time. And I remember that night I had a shortwave radio. And eventually Sheila and the kids went to sleep and I was laying in there. I'll never forget this ledge. You may not have heard this story, Emily. But I was laying there and all of a sudden I was listening to the U.S. US radio station. And it finally said, we're getting ready to close off for the night. And, I <laughs> and then they did, the they did America the Beautiful. They closed out with America the Beautiful. And here I was in Johannesburg, South Africa. And I was going, oh God, what have I done? The cost hit. When you look at John Mark, you think he's like a racehorse stumbling out of the gate. Have you ever seen a horse that everybody's, you know, they just believe is a great horse, great thoroughbred, big race. 
And all of a sudden you see, you know, I've always thought, can you imagine the tenseness of that moment as you're sitting on an animal with unbelievable strength and muscular development. Genetics have just just bred and brought this animal and you've got this little bitty five foot one jockey that weighs about a hundred pounds soaking wet and his rear ends up his feet are in the stirrups and he's sitting on go and you see this horse as it's just sitting there it's being held and all of a sudden the gate opens and you think to yourself as these horses are exploding out and the one thoroughbred the one everybody's put their money on stumbles coming out of the gate and nearly falls and you think man it's too late only to see that rare moment that rare exception when all of a sudden a jockey gets that horse gets its composure back and you find yourself looking at that horse way behind the rest of the group and you think go 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 because we pull for those that stumble that's us and all of a sudden you see that horse it hits its stride then you see that gate and before long it's like a well-oiled machine and you're thinking he starts inching up to the last of the group starts inching up getting closer then you see him round out and all of a sudden you see him coming down that last turn coming down that last stretch and that Jockey is wrapped around that horse like they're one and you see that horse coming and as it comes across the finish line in first place you stand up you don't know anything about the horse but you're rooting and screaming and you're thinking he did it that's John Mark when you look at John Mark John Mark is the racehorse that is stumbling out of the gate Southside, you know, I thought about this. I, I, I thought, you know, Southside is not for the faint of heart, is it? I mean, it's not. You know, this morning was not for the faint of heart. But when you come to, when you come to churches that are in the inner city, you, you know, the, the, and, and you come to a church like this, it's, it's tough. We realize this. You know, people, I had somebody the other day, I had somebody the other day, they said, uh, hey, uh, we're looking... Uh, they may have been talking about family. We're looking for a good church, and we've heard a lot of things about Southside, and we'd love to come there. You know what I immediately want to do? I want to say, well, first of all, you sure better pray about it. And you know what I did? They're actually living in Byram. I said, have you thought about Country Woods? John Daniels down at Country Woods. You may say, well, wait a minute, Brother Jeff. That's not right. You ought to be proud of your church. There's nobody more proud of this church than I am. But I realized this. That if you're not prepared for the difficulty of coming to a church like this, then a lot of times what happens, you just don't last long. And you know that. There's no frills. There's no programs. This is a hard ministry. This is the front line for the soul of America because we're in inner cities. And inner cities are different. When you come into inner cities, you're dealing with crime. You're dealing with racial tension. You're dealing with homeless. You're dealing with a lack of comforts and programs. And you're, 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 you don't have the finest facilities. Things leak. They break down. They don't quite work right. But that's, that's who we are. Let me tell you something about the IMB. If you decided today, you know, I want to be a missionary. I'm going to be a missionary. You know what the IMB does? The very first thing they look at? They look at your life and ask this question, what are you doing right now for the cause of Christ? And if you're not doing anything for the cause of Christ right now, you're disqualified. They don't even consider you. 
They check your references and they say, well, you know, they're not evangelistic. They're not reaching out. They're not doing any ministry, not plugged in anywhere. You know what the IMB does? Puts that rest. They just put your paperwork off to the side. They don't even consider you. You know what fired me up Wednesday night? I walked down Wednesday night and we've just had more and more kids coming and I walked in Wednesday night and there I saw Amanda McDonald saying, hey, could I get everybody's attention? We're getting ready to pray before we eat. And I thought to myself, that's a missionary. They're a missionary no matter where they go. It doesn't matter whether they're in South Side or South Sudan. It makes no difference. It's still South, I guess. But you see, that's what it means. And the IMB, when you know what, you know what, we were, we were, we were being fired. I was being fired. Um, Bonnie remembers well. Uh, they were trying to fire me from the church she was a member of when I was, when she was a child. And, and they were going to fire me before I could be appointed. The deacons were trying to fire me. The IMB in Richmond called a special meeting of the executive committee to bring up our situation and to say, what are we going to do? Because we don't appoint church planners and church developers who are not presently pastoring a church. So they would have to break all, port, uh, uh, all, of, the, all of the requirements. Because if I got fired, then I wasn't pastoring a church. So they were trying to basically, some of these deacons trying to sabotage me being appointed to the IMB, to the mission field. That's how bad they hated me. I hate to say it. The IMB executive committee met, came together and said, hey, we don't care whether they fire him or not. We're going to appoint this family. You know why? Because they were getting ready to send us to Africa and they said, if he's willing to take a stand for race issues on this side in America, imagine what kind of a missionary he'll be in Zimbabwe. You see, um, the reality is, and let, let, let's move on, look, and then we'll close in a minute, but look at Acts 15. Take up from Acts 13, go over to Acts chapter 15, verse 36. Because in Acts 15, verse 36, it says, Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. In other words, this is the, Paul's second missionary journey. He and Barnabas... Verse 37, Barnabas wanted to take who? Who did Barnabas want to take? He wanted to take his relative. He wanted to take his cousin. He wanted to take John, who was also called what? Mark. Remember, John is his Jewish name. Mark is his Gentile name with them. But Paul did not what? Think it wise to take him because he had done what? He had deserted them in Pamphylia. And so what happens here, watch as we read a little bit farther, and had not continued with them in the work. Look at verse 39. We think sometimes we're just supposed to be sweet, kind, nice, and never disagree. Let me tell you something, folks. Sometimes God's people do not agree. Sometimes even as brothers and sisters, the Bible says as best you can seek peace with all men. But let me tell you something. There's some people in this room I probably don't agree with. And there's some people in this room you may not agree with me. And sometimes the agreement can be so sharp between two people that literally we have to say, hey, listen, we can't come to an agreement here. We're going to have to part company. 
It doesn't mean we quit living each other. We just know that two can't walk together except they be agreed. Paul and Barnabas had such a sharp disagreement over this young man named John Mark who had stumbled coming out of the gate that basically Barnabas says, look, we're going to take... And the Bible says in the language here, in the Greek language, Andy, it says here that they were continually arguing over it. Imagine Paul and Barnabas in such a sharp disagreement that they're continually arguing over and over and over again. And Barnabas says, we're going to take him. Paul says, no, we're not. And finally, the Bible says they had such a sharp agreement, they decided to go two different directions. Paul would take Silas and go on the second missionary journey. Barnabas would take John Mark. Look this way. We don't hear from Barnabas for two years. We don't hear from John Mark for ten years. It's as if they fall off the radar. I remember, because sometimes you have conflict when you have passionate people. I remember the Missionary Learning Center, and Sheila can remember this. You go through all this training, go through all this training. You know what the biggest training was? The biggest moment of training was the day they were going to bring us together for a mock mission meeting. Because every year on a mission field, your mission meets together. Now everybody listen closely. The Missionary Learning Center said, today we're going to have a mock mission meeting. I want, we want you to pray up. We want you to be prepared because this is the ugliest side of missions. Get ready. Now, what they've understood about the personalities of missionaries, they're, they're independent. They're strong personalities, passionate. They're just independent kind of people. So they bring us missionaries. This is a mock, make-believe. You're going to be from this country. You're from Zimbabwe. You're from South Africa. You're from Botswana. You'll be from Namibia. And we're going to bring you all together. And you all going to try to do business together. Let me tell you, it was ugly. I mean, before long, we're talking about a mock, make-believe meeting. We're standing up, shouting across the room. That's not right. You can't do that. Listen, my people, the Shona people there in Zimbabwe, they only have this many ministries, I mean, this many missionaries. They only have this amount of the budget. That's not enough for us to do the work that we need to do. Our hospital at Sanyati needs more money than that. And we're arguing and carrying on, arguing, getting so mad so filled with emotion that literally it was almost mind-boggling. It was a made-up mimic show was what it was. But they were showing us something and they were making us aware of something, especially in Africa. Missionaries in Africa are a strange breed of people. And mission, let me tell you something. You know the only churches that survive in transitional areas? They're churches that have been pastored, according to George Barna, by former missionaries. You know why? Because, and I offend people a lot of times, because I'm very passionate about the people I minister to here in this community. You see, John Mark wasn't ready. Paul knew that. Paul was a passionate man, but the reality is, is that Paul has said to Barnabas, he's, he's just not where he needs to be. Now that, that's Mark the deserter. Secondly, Mark the missionary. Did he change? Everybody shake your head up and down. Yes, he did. Ten years later, ten years later, well, turn to, turn, take a right, go over to Colossians. You can't go nowhere anyway. Uh, 
except home to lay down and rest on a rainy day, but you don't want to do that anyway. Colossians 4.10, look at this, and we'll close in just a moment. I love Megan. Uh, Megan, you did a great job. Thank you so much. Because if Jeffrey, if I, I have to be very careful and not say in closing or in conclusion, because if he's up in the sound room, I see him go, he's getting ready to come back around here, and I'm not ready yet. So what's nice, nice about Megan, she's just comfortable to sit there for a minute. But anyway, uh, did he change? Yes, he did. Look at Colossians chapter 4, verse 10. Now, everybody look this way real quickly. Let me give you a little bit of the background here. Paul is writing books like Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon. Those books were written while he was in prison. Paul's in prison twice. One, he's imprisoned the first time in Rome, but he has a little bit of freedom. The second time he's imprisoned is when Nero burns Rome and he's going to blame the Christians and he has Peter crucified and he has Paul beheaded. That's why I have a hard time with people who don't come to church on a bad day. I may be weird. But in Colossians chapter 4 verse 10, Paul said this to the church at Colossae. He said, my fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you his greetings as does who? Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. So here you have, listen, 10 years ago, you have Paul and Barnabas about ready to take their second missionary journey be in such a conflict, such a confrontation, such a disagreement that Paul takes Silas and hightails it onto the mission field and, and, Paul t and, and Barnabas takes John Mark and they kind of fall off the planet. It's as if we don't know where they are. Ten, year, ten years later, the guy, that Mark's, the guy that Paul says is not ready, not mature, he's not where he needs to be, no, we're not going to take him, he's with Paul in, in Rome. Now that's powerful. What changed? I think it's critical that you and I see that John Mark is reclaimed he is valuable to Paul, and he's valuable to the cause of Christ. In fact, closing, look at, look at second, look at second, go over, take another right, go over to second Timothy, second Timothy chapter, chapter four, verse 11. Now, real quickly, this is Paul's, he's in, he's in Rome the second time, he's in prison, he's waiting to be beheaded. And in second, second Timothy chapter four, verse 11, watch this. Paul goes on. You know, Paul was one to name names. I like that. Paul doesn't mince any words, but he's straightforward. He says, do your best. He's talking to Timothy, his son in the faith. He says, do your best to come to me quickly for Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Now, say amen if you're where I'm. Are you with me? Okay, only Luke is with me. Get Mark. John, he must have been like a little bit like me too. He may have been weird too. He only used one name. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is what? He is helpful to me in the ministry. And, he, and Paul mentions it again in Philemon chapter 23. So everybody look this way. First time, Acts chapter 12, verse 12, we're introduced to John Mark. He's a naked kid, preteen, probably running out of the house, but, well, he, he's butt naked eventually trying to escape the temple police. While Jesus is going to Gethsemane, he's scared and running the opposite way. We're introduced again to him in Acts chapter 13, where Barnabas, who was a Levite, says, hey, why don't we take my cousin uh, John Mark with us? He, and he probably was Levitical line as well. Let's take him with us. 
Chapter 13, he goes with Paul and Barnabas only to get, when the going gets tough, he gets going. He leaves, he runs. It may have been what we saw back when he was a child. We still see it. He's still driven by fear rather than by faith. Acts chapter 15, Paul and them get into such a disagreement that Paul said, look, I'm not taking John Mark with me. He's immature. He's, un, he, you know, no, I'm not going to do that. He and Barnabas part ways, but look this way. Ten years later, he's with Paul in Rome, and here's the key. When he writes the gospel of Mark, most believe this. When Nero burned Rome, now let me tell you what Nero was doing before he burned Rome. This is for all those people who are listening by the website who stayed at home because it was raining. When Nero was persecuting the church, you know what he did with Christians, followers of Jesus? He took them and he soaked them in oil. He didn't drown them, he soaked them in oil. Then he took a wooden stake and he ran it down the back of their neck, down inside their skin, along their backbone, and then he staked them out in his garden and he lit them, still alive, to light his gardens to light his garden while he was celebrating with his guest and having a, basically a cookout. Nero is so paranoid, he burns Rome. He blames the Christians. Then he, does two, he takes two men out. He takes Paul out, who is beheaded after he writes 2 Timothy. When he says, bring John Mark to me, he's profitable to me. He's useful. Bring him. I need him. Shows you the change in Paul's heart. Shows you the change that in, in John Mark and Mark. But Peter is also crucified. When they were going to crucify Peter, his history tells us that Peter said he wasn't worthy and he has to be crucified upside down. He was crucified upside down. It was believed that the gospel of Mark was written right after the death of Peter. John Mark had been listening. He had been tutored. He had been counseled. He had spent his life with Peter. He had spent his life with Paul. Imagine that. And John Mark, filled with the Holy Spirit, begins to write the gospel of Mark as you and I have it because he had listened to the sermons and the stories and all of the things that Peter had been saying. And now that Peter was dead, the church said, you better get this written down quickly. We need to note this. And when you, come to the, when you come to the end of Mark, when you come to the end of the Mark, the end of Mark is, is unlike any other book in the Bible. Because when you go to the end of Mark, look at the very end of Mark. Uh, when you look at the very end of Mark, you'll find something there. You'll find from verse 9 to verse 20 in that last chapter, Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 9 through verse 20, that it says the earliest manuscripts do not contain this part of it. Do you know why? Because when it ends, look at verse 8 of chapter 16. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. You know what Mark does? He just simply gives you the bare facts, just like that. And it's as if you're hanging because that's not the end of the story. I love John MacArthur. He said, this is not the end of the story. He said it ends so abruptly that later writers, scribes added something to add because they felt like it just ended so quickly. But that was Mark. 
the tide was turning. Now let me say this, some in this room, you may be here today and, and you think to yourself, you know, I'm a little bit like John Mark. I, I, there, there, there's, there, maybe there is some potential in me, but I, I've stumbled out of the gate. I, I've, I've just kind of faltered and stumbled along. I, I, I've let people down. I'm, I'm, I'm not really where I need to be. I can relate to John Mark. I, I, I feel a lot like John Mark. Let me read to you a story. I, I think it is so good. A friend of mine wrote this in a book that he penned, but I want you to listen to this. It said, One of the well-known professional baseball umpires of the 1930s and 40s. Now remember, that's prior to the time when you had uh, sound systems and announcers and all of that. So this is the 1930s, 1940s when they would call games. It said one of the well-known, one of the well-known professional baseball umpires of the 1930s and 1940s was a guy by the name of Bill Kleim or Kleem. He was a colorful personality and considered by many to be at that time the loudest mouth, the most volume voice of anyone on the east side of the Mississippi River. Once he was working a game at Yankee Stadium between the New York Yankees and the Cleveland Indians. The score was tied 2-2, two to two, and it was the bottom of the ninth inning. The Yankees had a man on, on at second base when Gil McDougal hit a single to center field. The Cleveland outfielder quickly retrieved the ball and fired it back to the catcher. The catcher applied the tag just as the runner slid across home plate. It was a close call. All over Yankee Stadium, for a few moments, it became completely silent. But then from the Cleveland bench and from the stands, the team and their fans began to shout, He's out! But the Yankee bench and all their fans shouted, No, he's safe! The whole stadium, Yankee Stadium, seemed to be involved with conflicting screams. He's out! No, he's safe! No, he's out! No, he's safe! Finally, Bill Kleem stood up held his hands up high. Quiet! He shouted at the top of his voice. Then he took off his mask and he said, He ain't nothing until I say what he is. Friend of mine, Steve Taylor, commenting on that, listen to what he said. He said, That accurately illustrates the authority of God when it comes to our sin, our failure, and our restoration. Right now, Satan may be trying to knock you out of the race. You may be ready to give up and quit. You may be so discouraged that you think you will never be able to effectively serve the Lord again. But remember, you ain't nothing until God says what you are. And you're not out until He says you're out. Isn't that great? Don't you thank God that God didn't give up on John Mark? And you may say, well, you know, then are you saying that Paul was wrong? No, I'm not. What if Paul's passionate treatment of John Mark 
was part of the reason that he caused Mark to repent and turn in and be the man that God called him to be because he just wouldn't bend. I don't know. What if it was Barnabas taking him, put, taking him under his wing and developing him? It's definitely believed that Peter, now listen to this, it is definitely believed that Mark's transition, his transformation came primarily by the apostle Peter. Now let me ask you something, why? You remember in Luke 22 when Jesus, Peter, Jesus looks at Peter and says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked that he can sift you as wheat. But I prayed for you that your faith will not fail. And after you come through this, strengthen your brothers. And do you remember, what did Peter do? Everybody, what did he do? Did Peter, did he do well? Did he accomplish? Did he have victory? As he thought he was going to have, what did he do? He blew it big time. I don't know him. I don't know him. I blankety blank don't know him. You know, the crow of the rooster. And the Bible says that Jesus looked at Peter, and you know what Peter did? Peter realized he was a failure. And the Bible says that Peter went out and he wept bitterly and he repented. Judas hangs himself, Peter repents. You know why Peter, you remember what Jesus said when you come through this? Strengthen your brothers. You know what Peter saw in John Mark? He saw himself. He said he deserves another chance. And because of that, you and I have the gospel of John. I mean, the gospel of Mark. Isn't that great? Let's stand. Maybe you feel like a failure this morning. Maybe you feel like even on a day like today, you think to yourself, you know, there's so much I dreamed, so much I wanted to do. Uh, but I, I, I feel like I'm not getting anywhere. I feel like I'm stumbling along in this race. I feel like I keep falling back into old patterns of disobedience, old behaviors, old attitudes, old sins that I thought I'd given up, coming back into my life again. And you just feel like, you know, I'm just not where I need to be. Yeah, I'm, that's me. That's me. I can relate to John Mark. Well, let me tell you something. You ain't out until God says you're out. And let me tell you, to be here today on this kind of stormy day, I would venture to say that you're not out yet. God has you here for a purpose because God loves you, He cares about you, and He wants you to sell out to Him so He can do everything that He wants to do in your life. And until you reach that point, you're going to be miserable. Nothing works out. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you. And Lord, I thank you for this group that is here. Wow. Phones going off all morning. Tornado warnings. Bad weather. And yet, dear Lord, there are families here. Families that packed up small children and came here. Lord, I thank you. And I pray, dear Lord, even as they prepare to go home, that you wrap your arms around them and keep them safe. But Lord, whether, whatever you do in our lives, dear Lord, it's the safest place to be in the center of your will. Regardless of the storms that may come. And Lord, if there's one here that does not know you, they've never given their life to you, they don't know for certain that they're saved, and through your Holy Spirit you've spoken to them, I pray today that they would be saved. That they would repent of their sin and recognize and Say, Lord, I'm where I'm at because of the poor choices that I've made and I've rebelled against you. And Lord, I'm not a Christian. But I repent and ask you to come into my heart and forgive me of my sin and right now live in me. And if they pray that prayer truly out of faith, believing 
then Lord, even in this moment, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And if somebody prayed that prayer and they meant it, then I pray they'll come forward and make it public. For others in this room, they know they're saved, but they need to be baptized. They need to follow through with baptism. I pray they'll do that today. This is a good day to do it. I pray, dear Lord, for others that may need to plant their life here, that they'll do that. And I pray, dear Lord, that for anyone in this room who feels like I'm a Christian, but I've just simply been falling and stumbling, may they recognize that God still sees a racehorse. He still sees potential. He hasn't given up. He believes in the people in this room. Most of all, he believes in the power of his son, Jesus Christ, to come into the worst sinner, all of us, and to raise us up and make us look like Jesus. So, Lord, we thank you and we praise you. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus.